Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this episode of the Full and Frank podcast, sponsored by Acris Exchange. I'm David Birk, and I'm joined today by Simon French, Chief Economist and Head of Research at Pamela Gordon. Greetings, David. Always a pleasure to join you on the podcast. And our special guest today is Andy Haldane, the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts. Andy was previously the distinguished and highly respected Chief Economist at the Bank of England until 2021, and was also the Executive Director of Financial Stability from 2009 to 2021. Andy, Happy New Year and welcome. David, thank you. Uh, and Happy New Year to you and to Simon as well. Very good to be speaking to you both. Well, welcome, Andy. Uh, I mean, can we start by uh, congratulating you for getting your feet under the table finally as, as CEO of the RSA? Now, there will be some listeners who are not familiar with the, the function of the RSA. So perhaps in your own words, you could start by talking about the organisation. And also, I want to go into the specifics of a recent missions paper put out by the RSA, Design for Life, which which has seven pathways for social change. Perhaps you can outline how those are framing the work over the next few years. Absolutely, Simon. Thank you for that. So RSA, Royal Society of Arts, or to give it its full title, actually, Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. I think the kind of full title, which is a better job of describing the fullness of what the RSA has been up to, over what is getting on now for 270 years. So it was born in the middle of the 18th century, so right in the middle of the Enlightenment movement and very much an Enlightenment uh, organisation committed to social change throughout those almost 270 years. Well, perhaps, as with many things, it's best illustrated uh, by deeds rather than uh, words. So, yeah, among the achievements, the many achievements of the RSA over that period have been the first mass tree plantation programme in the UK, the first act of mass conservation uh, way back in the 18th century, that was. Mm. And indeed, the RSA has been at the forefront of the conservation movement as long as that word uh, has existed uh, globally. We were the architects of the first public examinations in state schools, uh, including for girls. We were the originators of the Great Exhibition in the middle of the 19th century, uh, which was the first ever global example of a trade fair, the sort of trade fairs we now see uh, occurring on a weekly, if not daily, basis, and maybe more prosaically uh, and closer um, to the present day, with the originators of the Blue Plaque Scheme, you see, um, commemorating famous figures uh, from the past, indeed of the fourth plinth at Trafalgar Square, um, a couple of uh, decades Ago. So a very eclectic range of social change projects, bridging the arts, bridging the manufacturers, bridging the commerce. Business is the business of the RSA. 
working across professions, across disciplines, across countries. We have fellows of the RSA in over 90 countries uh, around the world. That's the past. We have turned to the, the present and the future, very much building on that, Simon. Mm. mentioned this design for life sort of mission statement we put out uh, about six months ago now, just after I'd arrived. If I was sort of summarizing that, praising that in a single sentence, or if I was summarizing the RSA's mission in a single sentence, we are effectively in the regeneration game. Mm. Uh, that is to say, uh, putting in place uh, the structures, the systems that would enable a regeneration of people, that is to say, uh, their skills and capabilities to allow them to succeed, the regeneration of place, that is to say, uh, helping communities and towns and cities and regions uh, to grow and to thrive and to flourish. And the final element of the regeneration game would be planet. Mm. The words, the replenishment of what's sometimes called your know, natural capital, our climate uh, and the biosphere and our ecosystem. So the regeneration of people, place and planet, the three Ps, because it's not enough for us just to sustain those systems. We need genuinely to regenerate or to replenish uh, those systems from which we've been extracting skills and community capital and natural capital for too many years. So I hope that gives a bit of a window uh, on our world and on what the RSA both has done and is seeking to do over the next 250 years or so. Well, it certainly does, and I'll I'll hand we'll come back to the issue of social capital later in the podcast. But I'll hand over to David at this stage. Andy, I mean, my first question may seem rather naive. Forgive me for it, but in your capacity as chief economist, when you were at the Bank of England, you were well known for getting us, for want of a better expression, your fingernails dirty by travelling all over the country, enabling you to appreciate the various complex issues and requirements for the differing regions. Will this experience help you with your challenge at the RSA? If so, why? Yeah, thanks, David. And um, uh, I mean, you're right that um, in the latter part of my bank career, and I was there, wow, 32 years, a long time, I spent as much time, if you like, out in the field discussing the economy um, with the people in the economy uh, as I did set up my um, very nice desk in Threadneedle Street, <laughs> pouring over the data and the spreadsheets. I mean, they were both wonderful things. I enjoyed both hugely. But I, can, I came to appreciate over time that I needed both bits of the jigsaw puzzle to complete the picture. I needed the, the nerdy bits, the quantitative bits, the data bits, the models and the spreadsheets. Really, really important, really, really valuable piece of the jigsaw. But also I need to complement that, very much complement that, with the face-to-face -face conversations, with the stories that people yeah. told me about the economy. You know, business people and community leaders and faith leaders uh, and charities. Um, 
you know, that, that gave me the kind of panoramic 360 view on the economy, David, that I found so useful yeah. for, for, for understanding it. And absolutely that's something I'd want to take forward in any future job I did, actually, and certainly this uh, job at the RSA, really important that I, as I already am, get out and about to visit our fellows, as I mentioned, all around the world, and certainly it's kind of right across the UK, and to use them uh, and their networks as a source of intelligence for me in understanding what is going on. I mean, I, I suppose maybe only fully appreciated how valuable those conversations and those visits were, David, when I stopped doing them during COVID. That was like losing an arm, really. I mean, um, not being able to have those face-to-face, uh, that face-to-face dialogue with as wide a range of people as possible, to see them in, uh, in their place, in their environment, discussing their issues. So I'm delighted now the world has opened up and I can get back to business. Now, knitting together David's question and my first question, I did say it, your, feet, your feet were finally under the table as CEO of the RSA. And that reason I said finally is, of course, you took six months out between transitioning from the bank where you were for more than three decades to the RSA to spend six months in central government working with Michael Gove and others on the levelling up white paper. Now, how did that inform your thinking? Did it aid that transition to the new mission you've got? What was? How did the two complement each other? Yeah, thanks, Sam. I mean, in some ways, although you know that um, that um, opportunity that secondment was a um, came from left field, came as a bell from blue. I already agreed to to join the RSA when um, the former prime minister Boris um, uh, Johnson rang me up. I think I was watching the Olympics at the time and said, um, uh, not, not, not so fast. Can you kind of help out on, on the levelling up front um, for a period? And um, uh, of course, the answer had to be yes. I, I had spent a lot of time prior to that thinking about regional differences in the UK and indeed visiting those places as part of the exercise I just discussed with David. So I, I had lots of skin in the game and a, and, a, and a very considerable passion for the topic. Um, I should say, um, uh, as did Boris Johnson and as does Michael Gove, and it was their passion for the topic, you know, allied with my uh, interest in it over a number of years that meant, uh, of course, I had to say yes. And to be honest, I thoroughly enjoyed the six months um, in government uh, helping out put together the plan, the white paper for levelling up uh, the country. I mean, as part of that, I did a fair amount of travelling around the UK to discuss um, with local people and local leaders what might uh, make sense. And those efforts continued, of course, long after I um, had left and are, you know, were a very good, perfect bridgehead, if you like, into the new world of the of the RSA, I mean, the more time I spend doing these things, Simon, which on the face of it seemed quite different, you know, Bank of England, government, RSA. Before Simon gets stuck into the social capital vacuums, which is a very important question, I'd just like to extend here. I mean, this 19, 2022 has been just a, an awful period 
of political confusion and turmoil. Um, just a an I, another naive question, but I think it's quite important, is as we've had what I call inertia that appears to have set in, has it blown the levelling up course off course completely? And more to the point, has it made RSA's agenda more difficult to deliver in the immediate future? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. It's one that you know, has been asked of me fairly frequently. And to be perfectly honest, you know, there was that, let's call it, let's be polite, called the interregnum period over the <laughs> summer and autumn, uh, when, you know, we, we saw policies rotating, we saw personnel rotating in a way that, you know, wasn't uh, conducive to, to making good and forging ahead on any policy, actually, whether it's levelling up or anything else. Yeah. You know, uh, in a way, we haven't quite ended up back where we started, although we have when it comes to the levelling up secretary, that Michael Gove is back as levelling up secretary. <laughs> and that gives me a very considerable degree of confidence that the agenda I had a little hand in, 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 in shaping earlier in 2022 will be taken forward with real vim and vigour by Michael, I know that uh, will be the case, having discussed it with him um, on a number of occasions. And you'd say, of course, yeah, but it, it's much harder to make good on that now, you know, given the other challenges government is facing. But in response to that, I mean, I would say, and more importantly, I think Michael and the Prime Minister would say, in fact, Prime Minister did say this yesterday, I was at his speech, now in the east of London, that you know, because the cost of living crisis falls disproportionately on poorer people and on poorer places, that makes the levelling up agenda even more important now than it was when we put the white paper out uh, nine, nine months ago. So everything I see and hear uh, from the government, from the Prime Minister, from the Secretary of State downwards, suggests to me that this very much is still the centre of the government's plans and priorities. It's also, I should say, and very encouragingly, at the centre of the plans and priorities of the Labour Party, of the opposition party. And you know, for me, as, a, as an arm's length objective civil servant, a public servant, that's very encouraging that we have cross-party support for the levelling up agenda. Yeah. Whichever way the wheel turns politically, and, and who knows which way it will turn over the next 12 months, uh, there is that consensus and agreement that, that solving and um, closing those long-standing um, regional disparities uh, will remain a priority um, of government but not just at central government, David, but also local government and the private sector yeah. and civil society. This will only work if it is a team effort that straddles sectors uh, and isn't just left to being a central government exercise. Yeah, no, I understand that. Now, now, Andy, I want to take you back to another report you put out in recent years in your tenure as chair of the Industrial Strategy Council. And when I read that report, that interim report you put out, I was struck by how regeneration across time and across countries has been tried in, in many locations 
under under many different political movements. Um, but one of the impediments often, and certainly when I worked in the cabinet office uh, in the early 2010s on the big society agenda, was the areas which were hardest to reach were ones that had something of a social capital vacuum, didn't necessarily have the um, community coherence to uh, help the regeneration process. And this led to criticisms of regeneration programs that they're vulnerable to what is known as middle-class capture. What is your own thinking and indeed the RSA's thinking on, on that as a threat to regeneration that spreads out across the UK? Yeah, it's a very important point, Simon, and, and, and the work that you were involved with uh, back then under the big society banner, I think that was the correct diagnosis, I should say. I mean, you'd argue about whether there was the right prescription, mm. um, but it was absolutely the right diagnosis that, that uh, if we are to um, place make and indeed nation build on a sustained basis, on an inclusive basis, we can't afford to neglect this sometimes uh, slightly elusive uh, concept, which is social capital, mm. the trust and relationships and goodwill uh, that's embodied and embedded uh, in communities. It, it, that's the very reason we give that, 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 that concept um, star billing in the levelling up white paper. You know, it, was, it was on all fours with the traditional capitals that, that economists um, like you and I discuss, you know, the physical capital, the human capital, the financial capital, social capital, every bit as important uh, for making places and indeed for making, uh, for making nations. In terms of how we nurture that social uh, capital, uh, I mean, one element of that is to build and develop uh, what is sometimes called social infrastructure to support that build of social capital. Mm. I mean, that can come in many and various forms, from decent high streets to football clubs to youth clubs to parks and green spaces. These are all things you might think of as social infrastructure. In other words, uh, things that make you know, places worthwhile uh, um, areas to, to live in uh, and to enjoy, and which boost your sort of well-being and happiness and sense of belonging and community. And, and I'm very pleased that developing social infrastructure was uh, given a position of prominence alongside building physical infrastructure like roads and rail and digital infrastructure like broadband. Uh, as a key element of the levelling up and placemaking agenda. That's very much work I want us to continue with uh, at the RSA. It's still social capital, still hasn't got the prominence of the other capitals. Social infrastructure still hasn't got the prominence of the other infrastructures. There's been some really fascinating work, Simon, just come out of the United States, um, by this superstar social scientist called Raj Chetty at Harvard. Mm. He'd done some earlier work looking at patterns, very granular patterns of social mobility in the United States. 
showing how different those patterns were, you know, state by state, district by district, and asking why. And in Raj's follow-up work, published just over the summer in two articles in, in Nature magazine, the science uh, periodical, he uh, seeks to explain those patterns of social mobility uh, in the US by reference to the social networks in which people in those places operate. So he uses this fantastic data drawn from Facebook on who knows who mm. and basically concludes by trawling over literally billions and billions of observations. It sort of confirms something that will surprise neither you nor David particularly, but it's that um, when it, when it terms, comes to the determinants of, of, of get on and why they get on, it's all about who you know rather than what you know. I'm summarising two very nerdy nature papers there in a single sentence. But the essence is, it's your social connectivity, bridging capital, that really matters most, more than anything else, to your, to your prospects for progression in society. And I think that is a, a very important um, empirical finding with potentially quite profound policy implications. You know, can we create new social infrastructures that connect disconnected individuals in a way that will then enhance hugely their prospects for progression and being socially uh, mobile? And, and, Andy, and Andy, on, on that, I've heard arguments that the increasingly hyper-connected uh, economy we live in, the technology enablers of that, make the ability of those who can leverage it even greater than those that can't. And you have a digital divide emerging, reinforcing social inequalities. Or I've also heard the other side of the argument that this is the um, great democratization of um, social networks. It's reducing the barriers. Where do you sit? Uh, and you can't sit on the fence. You can't be the traditional economist and sit on the fence on this. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I, I'm closer towards, I, I worry more about um, your first characterization, uh, Simon, which is, you know, I, I think digital communities that's left to their own devices will exhibit this property, you know, well-known from every network, particularly social networks, as they are inhabited by social animals, which is uh, homophily, which is that, you know, birds of a feather do tend to flock together. Mm. Uh, this is the kind of echo chamber, if you like. I think those forces are very natural uh, among human beings, sort of stranger danger, if you like. Uh, but for me, that kind of reinforces the importance of us actively building infrastructures that break down those echo chambers, that break down those silos, that connect those that are otherwise disconnected or unconnected uh, in a way that stands to benefit uh, both sides. That's what Rajchev's work yeah, illustrates very clearly. I mean, his earlier work he used uh, as a vehicle for some programs which actively um, 
developed uh, schools with pupils drawn from very different backgrounds uh, to forge those bonds, those connections that otherwise would not exist socioeconomically, and then showed how that could really boost uh, prospects. Um, among those particularly, otherwise wouldn't have those connections, but actually more generally. And I think that's just the right sort of thought experiment, um, that in some ways our new digital communities probably reinforce that homophily that I mentioned, and therefore we have to try even harder yeah. for the infrastructures that lean against that. Mm. Now, before handing back over to David, I want to look at another contemporary issue, which is... Uh, often looked through an economic lens, but actually it's got a big social lens, which I want to get your view on. And this is the big rise in inactivity that has taken place around the world since the pandemic. And it's partly attributable to ill health and the legacy of the pandemic, but partly due to shifting lifestyle choices, very much a voluntary uh, decision. Um, do you have a sense of the social impact of this trend, uh, a trend that, as I say, is so often seen in purely economic terms? Yes, I mean, I think this is a, a big factor. I mean, I'm saying nothing new in that, of course. I mean, the, the government has an a ongoing piece of work um, being led by the Chancellor and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions looking at this question of, you know, why is it levels of inactivity in the UK have picked up so materially, materially more than elsewhere, actually? Mm. Um, uh, and what might be done to get more people back into the work uh, place. Um, let's not understate um, the economic importance of this. I know I'll, I'll get onto the social in a second, Simon, but mm. you know, a rising workforce pre-COVID um, was, um, you know, was responsible for virtually all of the growth in the UK's productive potential uh, from the dawn of the global financial crisis up until COVID. Mm. So, you know, if the workforce is now contracting, as it has, after a period of expansion, that is very bad news for economic growth prospects, unless we can either reverse that trend in the workforce or boost the productivity of the workforce, which is easier said than done. So economically, this poses a very significant challenge to growth. Uh, but socially, to your point, um, the costs for me are every bit as great, if not greater. Uh, we know that uh, being in work uh, provides a purpose to people's lives. It gives them confidence. It gives them that connectivity to other people that you and I uh, were just discussing and thereby boosts their well-being uh, and happiness and indeed productivity to come back to, to that. So, you know, I, I think um, both from an economic and social perspective, this is a problem. Uh, that we can't afford not to, to tackle head on, uh, both for what it means for the national economy and because of what it means for individual lives and, of course, what it means for individual communities. 
is an important leveling up dimension of this as well. Rises in inactivity and levels of inactivity are unsurprisingly um, greatest in the poorest parts of the UK. So um, this is among the many structural headwinds we face economically and societally, and I hope the government initiative that's uh, in train and will, I think, report in time the budget could do something to turn the tide. We've got time constraints, Andy, uh, so I'd ask you, like to ask you a very quick question before Simon finishes off with, I think, a much more important question. First and foremost, are you supportive of increasing the number of regional governments? I mean, how many Andy Burnhams, Andy Streets and Ben Hoochins are out there with the authority, the power and the charisma to get the job done? I am very supportive of this, David. In fact, I go as far as to say, I think without making progress on the devolution and decentralization of power, it's very hard to make progress in closing those regional disparities I mentioned uh, earlier on. It's true that um, you need those people to have real authority. I um, mean, you, know, you use the words authority, power, and charisma. Uh, you're absolutely right. Those are the crucial ingredients. But equally, we will not attract people with those characteristics unless we give them power. Uh, so for me, this chicken and egg problem is solved by the decentralization and delegation of powers. And if you do that, you'll attract the right people and get the right outcomes to make a success of leveling up. Andy, uh, David and I, when discussing the content of this podcast, deliberately tried to steer away from going back over your time at the Bank of England. But I think it's inevitable if we, you will indulge us with one question. Um, and it, I think it reflects you in good light, but I'd like you to take you back to your salient warning in February 2021 about the risks of inflation. And you said, and I'm quoting from your speech, my judgment is that we might see a sharper and more sustained rise in UK inflation than expected, potentially overshooting its target for a more sustained period. Well, you were definitely right. Um, your critics, and there are a few on the Twitter sphere, um, <laughs> say you have been right for the wrong reasons. Um, how do you appraise that judgment two years on? I mean, um, the, the overall judgment, which I should say, Simon, um, I think at the time it was probably seen as being a relatively bold judgment. It was. Um, it was, definitely. Uh, to be honest, you know, of the macro judgments I've made over the years, I didn't think at the time it was an especially bold one, uh, because me, for me, the, the prognosis wasn't all that difficult. You know, what were, what were the, the roots of that judgment? We had an economy um, which was uh, it set to bounce back relatively rapidly in demand terms because the economy was opening up. But it did, did open up. It struck me as very likely that demand would bounce back. So resurgent demand bumps up against impaired supply, the impairment of supply again, not a big judgment call that one. If you've gone through two, period, two years of COVID, of course, uh, there's gonna be production bottlenecks and supply frictions, uh, frictions and fractures. On top of which uh, had been uh, laid, the administered, the biggest dose of combined monetary and fiscal medicine, probably in human history. Mm -hmm. So when resurgent demand comes up against impaired supply, on top of which you have tipped 
a huge significant dose of demand stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, unless the laws of economic gravity have suspended themselves, the result will be rising prices and probably on a sustained basis. And that we have seen. You know, has the prognosis been exactly as I anticipated? No. I didn't anticipate the war of Ukraine and neither did anyone else, of course. And that has made a bad situation worse. That has impaired the supply side more than I would have expected in February 2021. But the overall headline judgment, which is the one I gave you, remains intact. And that's the reason why inflation has risen above target on a sustained basis. And indeed, that is the reason, Simon, why I think inflation will remain above target on a sustained basis for some little while, uh, little while to come. So um, the details have changed and events have interceded. But underneath this is basically the same judgment now, as I had, I had kind of way back, um, um, almost two years ago now, I guess. Well, despite my desire to, I would love to do a whole another 40 minutes on this. I'm going to hand back to David to wrap up the podcast. Andy, brilliant, illuminating, so interesting. As Simon said, we could spend all day chatting to you. Just to thank you both from both of us for a really wonderful podcast. So grateful to you and thanks so much. Well, it's, as ever, it's uh, great to speak to, to you both, David and Simon. Really enjoyed that. Um, 2023, I mean, let's see. Uh, lots of doom and gloom and despair out there. Um, I think there's a role for all of us to ask the question, David, what could go right? Because um, there always is something. I've got one thing. I've got one thing for you, Andy. Win the Ashes. There you go. Well, when the ashes would be would be would be wonderful. Um, I may be more hopeful on the economy than on the ashes, to be honest, David, but I hope I'm wrong on both. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thanks, Simon. Mm-hmm.